from Emerson College, this is Ezra Podcast title here. It's Friday, December 13th. I'm Dylan. I'm Alana. Welcome to our podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about what two of the top-funded libertarian candidates, Vermin Supreme and Adam Kokesh, are doing to set themselves apart and attract a new wave of voters to the Libertarian Party. And later, Elena's going to answer an age-old question about third-party candidates. But first, we're going to be learning about Vermin. Boston has a distinct lack of douchebags, so it's great to see everybody out here at I first encountered Vermin this past August at the Straight Pride Parade, and I forgot that he runs for president every four years until somebody started yelling at him for not wearing his boots. How can you be president if you don't wear the boot? A boot? Yeah, normally he wears a boot on his head, but he took it off this time because he was afraid that the people organizing the parade were gonna steal it. So Vermin basically just tries to make a mockery out of every political system you can think of. But whereas every previous campaign was just basically a joke, he's taking this one seriously. This is a real campaign, first real campaign I've ever run. Um, raised most of $20,000, which is more than I've probably spent on all my previous campaigns combined. I have a real campaign staff. My campaign manager has real campaign experience, as does a lot of the other staff. So why is this one serious? For the last 30 or so years, Vermin's basically made a career out of just being politically homeless. So what sets this run apart is that he's actually with a party that he aligns with for the first time. The agreement that I've made with myself for this run is, I think, it palatable, is that I'm taking the Libertarian Party as my own, essentially. I mean, in addition to ponies, zombies, whatever else, I pull out my ass. And the policies that he's been promoting for the last, you know, three decades, like secret dental police, mandatory toothbrushing, and a pony-based economy, those policies have all stayed the same. But as ridiculous as they are, they're also mocking the government. I try and touch a lot of bases, poking fun at the whole police state with the secret dental police and making fun of the nanny state with the mandatory toothbrushing and making fun of the get stuff for free state with the free ponies. So when you count for the fact that libertarians tend to want as little government as possible and tend to critique the same aspects of government that Vermin is mocking, Vermin running as a libertarian candidate might be the only aspect of his campaign that makes sense. So what is he actually doing to get people to support him? He's basically saying that if he gets the nomination, he'll let the party use his image to draw in younger voters and basically spawn a new wave of libertarians. I'm making them an offer about harnessing uh, the whole character and cast and universe. I don't always shill for a political party, but when I do, it's definitely the Libertarian Party, for sure. And if you go by the most recent FEC filings, which were released this past October, Vermin's actually at $18.5,000 raised. This places him in third, but I was not able to speak to number one. However, I was able to speak to number two, which is Mr. Adam Kokesh, who raised $24,500 this year. Does Adam wear any hats? No. What sets this fellow apart? Well, he's the only person that can say that they're running on one single policy. He's promised that he turn each state into its own sovereign country. The very first thing I will do as president is resign with an executive order that renders the Constitution null and void as if it hasn't been for a very long time anyway. We acknowledge that the federal government is a bankrupt institution and take it through a peaceful, orderly bankruptcy process. It leaves us with 50 independent states. It's also important to note that this viewpoint's a result of Adams serving overseas 
overseas in the military. And it is exactly because of my experience in combat and seeing people die for lives who I cared about that I never want that to happen again. He believes that this policy alone is enough to make people want to elect him. His logic's actually kind of simple. By abolishing the federal government, the two-party system will essentially be abolished as well. And by extension, people will actually be better represented because governments will be more local and more customized to that individual region. By presenting Americans with a real alternative, a real opportunity to overthrow the duopoly, to overthrow this un-American idea of centralized coercive authority and restore freedom to American communities, it's really resonating with people. Well, that's all the time that we have right now for my segment. When we come back, Elena's going to tell us more about third-party candidates. You see, I actually spoke with experts. Hey. This is a commercial because real podcasts have commercials. Neely is a very good boy. News 7 is best news. Please give us an A. Welcome to my portion of the podcast. This week, I spoke with Dr. David Hopkins and Spencer Kimball about the impact third-party voters have on our current electoral system. And then I also spoke with third-party voters themselves from past elections to hear what they have to say about all this. To start, I'll go over the conversation I had with Dr. David Hopkins, a professor from Boston College and co-author of the textbook, Red Fighting Blue, How Geography Electoral Rules Polarize American Politics. How does he think this will work out? He foresees the upcoming election to not be too hot for third parties. Is there any historical precedent that he's going off of? Historically speaking, after a president serves two terms, third party support typically emerges. When the Democrats are in, there's a segment on the left that gets a little dissatisfied after eight years of a Democratic president. They start thinking more seriously about voting for a Green Party candidate or someone else. And in the third party world on the left, we saw that after two terms of Clinton when Ralph Nader ran as the Green Party candidate in 2000. But Elena, people are still dissatisfied satisfied about a lot of the mainstream candidates, and the third party had a lot of support last cycle, so what's different now? Just because they did so well in 2016, the best in 30 years, that doesn't mean very much. Nader was sort of blamed for throwing the election in Florida to Bush. When he ran again in 2004, he didn't get nearly the same level of support, even though it was the same candidate running. But my suspicion is that we'll see a similar pattern in the next election where the, the left is more unified behind whoever the Democrats nominate simply because they consider defeating Trump to be the top priority. So that's what you can see in the 2016 election with Obama, and they voted for a third party, and now they're not going to do that. First, thanks Obama. Second, people are still saying that they'll vote for a third party candidate. So how does this early election attention translate into votes later on? According to Spencer Kimball, the head of the Emerson Polling Society, people will poll for third party candidates after their primary nominee of choice loses. Part of what we call the divisive primary hypothesis in that in the divisive primary, where do voters go after their candidate loses? And sometimes it's to a third party in the general election because they're so bitter at the other side of their own party. But come election day, they go back to their major parties. Here's the big problem with third party in polling is they typically poll better than they perform. If it was a very intense Democratic primary, Republican primary, they might say I'm voting for third party. But then come election day, then they go and vote back to their party. So that's why you see a lot of melt. But what are the effects of the people that do vote for a third party candidate? There are many arguments that voting for third parties yields negative consequences. A common belief among the general public is that voting for these candidates is a complete waste of a vote. And the voters, they're aware of this? 
Yes, they are. I spoke with a bunch of third party voters from the 2016 election, and all of them were very aware that their party candidate was not going to win. One of them was Kyle Ranson, a UMass Boston student who voted for Gary Johnson. He basically felt like it was his duty to vote for someone he believed in. I took him seriously as a voter. I mean, I didn't feel like I was wasting my vote. I felt like I was voting for who I believed in. Even though in the back of my mind, I knew that he wasn't going to win. I still felt like it was like my job to vote for who I believe in rather than just vote for a candidate that I don't support. Are there any positives to the third party vote? The positives are that it is a form of protest. And according to Spencer, protest is a strength for our democracy. People who vote typically are not there to just throw their vote away. But if you look at voting reports, you'll see that Mickey Mouse gets a lot of write-in votes in a lot of states. Many years ago when uh, Saddam Hussein was in power, he would pride that he had like 98% of the vote. You're like, in a democracy, that could never happen. So if the most positive information that they gave you about the third party vote is that people vote for Mickey Mouse when they're upset, what sort of advice do they have for third party voters to make their votes matter more? Dr. Hopkins said in a winner-takes-all system, as we have today. Instead of voting for a third party, you should try to work within one of the two major parties that your views align with the most and essentially change it from the inside out. We have lots of examples in American history of one or both of the major parties changing, responding to mass political movements, citizen mobilization, and participation. We don't have a lot of examples of a third party getting anywhere doing that. The path of working within the major parties is more likely to pay off in the long run. Wait, are you basically saying that the month of reporting that I put into this and the first five minutes of this entire podcast were utterly useless? Yes, it was. I, um, I think I need to be sad somewhere else. Have a great winter break, everyone, and thanks for listening.